Chapter Nine of Northwest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Northwest by Harold Binloss. Chapter Nine: The Quiet Woods. A warm Chinook wind blowing from the Pacific carried the smell of the pines. The dark branches tossed, and a languid murmur, like distant surf, rolled up the valley. Jimmy had pulled off his coat, and his gray workman shirt was open at the neck, for he liked to feel the breeze on his hot skin. He was splitting cedar for roof shingles, but had stopped in order to sharpen his axe. Since he had not yet cut his leg, he thought his luck was good. A few maples, beginning to turn crimson, broke the rows of somber pines. In the foreground were chopped trunks, blackened by fire, ashes, and white chips. A tent and a half-built house of notched logs occupied the middle of the small clearing. In the background one saw high rocks, streaked at their dark tops by snow. Some of the snow was fresh and Jimmy imagined the speed he had used was justified. Yet so long as the Chinook blew, gentle Indian summer would brood over the valley. Jimmy's skin was brown, his mouth was firm, and his look alert. His hands were blistered and his back was sore, but this was not important. He could now pull a big saw through gummy logs and, as a rule, drive the shining axe-head where he wanted it to go. A belt held his overalls tight at his waist. When he tilted back his head to get his breath, his balance and pose were good. A plume of aromatic smoke floated across the clearing, and Okanagan Bob squatted by the fire. Bob's hair was black and straight, and his eyes were narrow. His crouching pose was significant, because a white man sits. Bob's skin was white, but it looked as if some Indian blood ran in his veins. He was an accurate shot and a clever fisherman. Now he fried trout for breakfast, and Jimmy wondered whether he would leave the fish long enough in the pan. As a rule, Bob did not cook things much. "'Somebody's coming.' he remarked, and began to eat. "'Take your fish when you want. I've got to pull out.' For a minute or two Jimmy heard nothing, and then a faint beat of horses' feet stole across the woods. The noise got louder, and by and by Margaret rode into the clearing. When Jimmy jumped for his jacket she smiled, and the nervous cayuse plunged. In the bush all goes quietly, and abrupt movement means danger. Margaret rode astride. Her dress was dull yellow, and her leggings were fringed deerskin. At the hotel Jimmy had approved her blue clothes, but he thought he liked her better in the bush. Somehow she harmonized with the straight trunks. It was not that she was finely built and beautiful one got a hint of primitive calm and strength. "'Shall I hold the bridle?' Jimmy asked. "'I think not,' said Margaret, and soothed the horse. "'Another time when you took the bridle I was forced to walk home, and you got a kick. 
"'On the whole, I think my luck was good,' Jimmy rejoined. "'When I went to Kelshope, things, so to speak, began to move.' Margaret got down, took a pack from the saddle, and tied the horse to a tree. Bob got up from the fire, seized his rifle, and looked at Margaret. "'I'm going to get a deer,' he said, and vanished in the wood. The underbrush was thick, but they did not hear him go. "'When I was at the station, the agent gave me your mail and some groceries,' said Margaret. "'My father allowed you were busy, and I'd better take the truck along.' Jimmy said, "'Thank you,' and gave her a thoughtful look. Margaret's voice was cultivated, but she talked like a bush girl. At the hotel she had not. "'I didn't order a fruit pie and a number of bannocks,' he said when he opened the pack. "'Oh, well, I was baking, and I reckoned if Bob was cook you wouldn't get much dessert. But have you eaten yet?' Jimmy said he imagined breakfast was ready, and Margaret went to the fire, glanced at the half-raw trout, and threw a black doughy cake from a plate. "'A white man cooks his food,' she said meaningly. "'Take a smoke while I fix something fit to eat.' Jimmy pushed two or three letters into his pocket and sat down on a cedar log. If Margaret meant to cook his breakfast, he imagined she would do so, and he was satisfied to watch her. For one thing, she knew her job, and Jimmy liked to see all done properly. She did not bother him for things. She seemed to know where they were. After a time she put the trout and some thin light cakes on a slab of bark, and Jimmy remarked that the fish were an appetizing golden brown. "'I expect you have not got breakfast, and I'll bring you a plate,' he said. "'At a bush ranch the woman gets the plates.' "'There's not much use in pretending the bush rules are yours.' jimmy rejoined anyhow i'll bring you all you want wash the plate please said margaret i'd sooner you did not rub it with the towel jimmy laughed you take things for granted i'm not a complete bushman yet he cleaned the plates and knives and margaret studied him something of his carelessness and the hint of indulgence she had noted were gone his face had got thin, and his frank glance was steady. Although he laughed, his laugh was quiet. The bush was hardening him, and when she looked about, she saw the progress he had made was good. Well, she knew Jimmy was not a loafer. After the cayuse kicked his leg, he carried her heavy pack to the ranch. "'Now we can get to work,' he said. Margaret allowed him to put a trout and some hot flapjacks on her plate. "'After all, I like it when people bring me things,' she remarked. "'At Kelshope, when one wants a thing, one goes for it. I reckon your friends ring a bell.' "'Perhaps both plans have some drawbacks. Still, I don't see why you bother to indicate that you do not ring bells.' "'It looks as if you're pretty keen,' said Margaret. "'Keener than you thought? 
Well, not long since, I'd have admitted I was something of a fool. Anyhow, I'd rather think you know the Canadian cities. At Toronto I stopped at a cheap boarding house. They rang bells for you. If you were not in right on time for meals, you went without. You didn't ask for the menu. You took what the waitress brought. Now you ought to be satisfied. I'm not curious about your job in the old country. I'm not at all reserved, Jimmy rejoined. I occupied a desk at a cotton mill office and wrote up lists of goods in a big book until I couldn't stand for it. Then I quit. Margaret weighed his statement and imagined he had used some reserve. For a clerk at a cotton mill to tour about Canada with rich people was strange. You talk about the old country, although you stated you were altogether Canadian, Jimmy resumed. My father's a Scot. He came from the border. Your name indicates it. The Jardines and two or three other clans ruled the western border, but were themselves a stubborn, unruly lot. Your ancestors were famous. I know their haunts in Annandale. I reckon my father was a poacher, Margaret observed. Jimmy laughed. It's possible the others were something like that. Anyhow, their main occupation was to drive off English cattle. But we won't bother. He stopped and mused. Sometimes, when he was at the cotton mill, he had gone for a holiday to the bleak Scottish moors. The country was romantic but rather bleak than beautiful, and he had thought a touch of the old moss-trooper's spirit marked their descendants. The men were big, and their Scottish soberness hid a vein of reckless humor. They were keen sportsmen and bold poachers. When one studied them, one noted their stubbornness and something Jimmy thought was quiet pride. Margaret had got the puzzling quality, one marked her calm, level glance and her rather haughty carriage. Although she was a bush rancher's daughter, Jimmy did not think he exaggerated much. "'Your house is going up, and you have cleared some ground,' she said. "'It looks as if you had not slouched.' "'Oh, well,' said Jimmy modestly, "'your father reckoned I must push ahead before the frost began.' But if we had made some progress, I imagine Bob is mainly accountable. Do you like O'Conagan? I don't know, Jimmy replied in a thoughtful voice. He stays with his job and puts it over, but he doesn't talk. Unless he's chopping and you hear his axe, you don't know where he is. He steals about. In fact, the fellow puzzles me. What's his proper business? Bob's a trapper. To get valuable skins you must go far north, but the black bear are pretty numerous, and sometimes a cinnamon comes down the rocks. Then tourists give a good price for a bighorn's head. I reckon Bob's wad was getting big until the politicians resolved to see the game laws were carried out. Now you must buy a license before you shoot large animals, and you may only shoot one or two. 
Then reserves are fixed, where you may not shoot at all. The belt across the range is a reserve, and the game warden made some trouble for Bob. Perhaps this accounts for his hiring up with you. Do you like the fellow? Margaret hesitated. She did not like Bob, but she did not mean to enlighten Jimmy. Sometimes Bob came to Kelshope, and when he fixed his strange glance on her, she got disturbed. Well, she said, if I wanted a log house put up or the timber wolves cleared off, I'd send for O'Canigan, but I'd stop there. He's not the sort I'd want for a friend. You imply, if you were a rancher, you wouldn't want him for a friend? Margaret's eyes twinkled. Why, of course, I implied something like that. But Bob goes to Kells Hope, and Mr. Jardine suggested my hiring him. My father's a bushman, said Margaret, rather dryly. His habit's not to get stung. But we'll let it go. What about your chickens? Jimmy had sent for some poultry, and so long as Margaret was willing to stop, he was satisfied to talk about his flock. Sometimes the bush was lonely, and to sit opposite Margaret had charm. She banished the loneliness and gave his rude fireside a homely touch. By and by, however, she got up. I have stopped some time, and you ought to get busy. She would not take his help to mount. She seized the bridle, stroked the cayuse, and was in the saddle. The horse plunged into the fern, Margaret waved her hand, and vanished. But for a few minutes Jimmy smoked and pondered. He thought Margaret harmonized with the quiet, austere woods, but although she talked like a bush girl, he wondered whether she had not done so in order to baffle him. Anyhow, he hoped she would come back and cook his breakfast another time. He could not see Laura Stannard beating up dough for flapjacks by his fire. Laura's proper background was an English drawing-room. She had grace and charm, and on the hotel terrace Jimmy was keen about her society. Then Laura was a good sort, and he owed her much. The strange thing was, although she had stated he ought to follow a useful occupation, she did not approve his ranching experiment. In fact, she had urged him to go back to the cotton mill. Jimmy admitted he was rather hurt because she was willing for him to go. Now, however, her picture began to get indistinct. The bush called, and Laura did not harmonize with the woods. Then Jimmy remembered Margaret had brought him some letters, and when he pulled out an envelope with an Indian stamp, his look was anxious. Sir James, however, stated that his London agents would send a check on a Canadian bank, and when Jimmy wanted to stock his ranch, his bills would be met. Sir James remarked that to buy cattle was better than to bet on horses that did not win, and chopping trees was not, by contrast with some other amusements, very expensive. Moreover, if Jimmy got tired, he could sell the ranch. He added that he was presently going to Japan, 
and afterwards to England by the Canadian Pacific Line. When he crossed Canada, he would stop and look his nephew up. Jimmy liked his uncle's rather dry humor, and admitted that some of his remarks were justified, for when Jimmy went to the races his luck was bad, but he put the letter in his pocket and picked up his axe. For some time he had talked and smoked, and, unless he hustled, the shingles he wanted would not be split by dark. End of chapter 9 Recording by Roger Moline